Good. Well, I want to uh, just start by asking you a question. And the question is, do you think of yourself as a strategic person? A strategic person. It's interesting, isn't it? Because Christians often talk about being uh, good, being faithful, being godly. They're all great things to talk about and important. But when you read through the Bible, you find that the Scriptures also call us to be strategic. The Bible talks a lot about the big works of the Kingdom of God and the strategies that we'll need for Kingdom work now and into the future. It's really important for us today because, as I said earlier, uh, Adelaide and South Australia and the world beyond desperately needs people to be thinking forward, Christians to be thinking forward about the next generation, about what's going to happen after we are gone. As the population grows, as it is, and the church declines, we need strategic thinking to work out how the gospel is going to have breath in another generation and how we are going to see the needs of the next generation met. It's interesting, Jesus explicitly calls his followers to act strategically. Uh, and this passage we've just read from Matthew 25 is part of that. It'd be great if you've got a Bible uh, with you to keep it open so you can see uh, what we're going to be looking at. I'm going to actually go through that passage in a bit of detail. But in order to understand it, we have to start by understanding its context. It's always the way, really, when reading the Bible, you can't just pluck a bit out of context and think it will make complete and full sense. We need to read the Bible in context. God gave us books of the Bible. Matthew's Gospel has a start, a middle and an end and we need to understand the whole thing in its context to know where each part fits. And what we have in Matthew 24 to 25 is interesting teaching from Jesus about what to do while we wait for Him to return. So the Scripture says Jesus will come back again uh, and what are we meant to do in the meantime? Well, that's what Matthew 24 and 25 speak about. Here's what you're meant to do in the meantime. And the way Jesus explains this to us is actually by stacking up a number of stories on top of each other. He tells one story, makes a point, builds on that point in the next story and builds on that point even further in the next story. And we are on the, we're going to look at the last story in the most detail, but I just want to tell you a little bit about the first two. Uh, you might actually know lots of these stories, uh, but you might not know how they all stack together. So in chapter 24, verses 36 uh, through to 51, we have the story of uh, a master who's gone off and uh, left the slaves to look after the place, but uh, they don't know when he's going to come back. And the message that we have in this first story is you need to be ready for him to return any time. You need to be ready for him to return any time because he'll come at an unexpected time. Now, I think our churches often do a good job of teaching us this, don't they? Uh, you've probably heard before, Jesus could come back any time. He could come back tomorrow. He could come back this afternoon. So you need to be ready. That's an important message. And that's the first part of the teaching that Jesus has here. You need to be ready for him to return any time. It's a great message to say get your house in order or get your spiritual house in order and keep it in order. The second story builds on that though and it's the story of the ten bridesmaids. You heard this story? The ten bridesmaids who go out at night waiting for the groom, they're going to greet the groom. 
but of course, the groom is longer in coming than they thought. Five of the bridesmaids are prepared. They bought extra oil for their lamps. The other five didn't bring extra oil for their lamps. And they have to go back to get some more oil when their oil runs out. Uh, and that's when the bridegroom comes. So they missed him because they weren't ready. And the message of that story is, be prepared for a long wait. If the first message is, Jesus could come back any time, be ready. The second message is, be prepared for a long wait. He might come back tomorrow, he might come back this afternoon, but he might not come back for 30 years. He might not come back for 2,000 years. Be prepared for a long wait. And then we come to our story, the parable or the story of the, the bags of gold, uh, or originally translated talents, which is a weight of, of metal, a weight of measure. And this story is about what to do while we wait, what to do while we wait. So you see how it develops? Jesus could come back any time, could come back, could be a long, long wait. Third story, what are you going to do while you wait? And that's what this story is about. The story is pretty simple on the surface, isn't it? What we have is a man who's uh, obviously a landholder, a man of some means, and he's going off on a journey. And while he's gone, he entrusts his assets to his servants. So as I'm going out of town, I'm going to give you my things and I'm entrusting you to look after them and to actually do good business with them and be profitable for me in my absence. Uh, the language in some Bibles is slaves, in other Bibles, servants. That's a limitation of the English language um, because what you have in the first century is neither... We tend to think of slaves, we think of black Americans forcibly enslaved. Uh, it's not quite that. People often sold themselves into slavery uh, in the ancient world. Perhaps bond servant is the best way of thinking about it. Anyway, he has these bond servants and he gives to them different amounts of his possessions, of his money to look after while he's gone. Now, just to put this in perspective and help you understand what sort of money we're talking about, uh, originally the language, as I said, was talent, and that's a, a weight of measure for precious metal. If these are talents of silver, if we're talking about five talents of silver, or uh, two talents of silver, one talent of silver, well, a talent of silver is worth about $1.2 million. So if we're talking about five talents of silver, we're talking about $6 million. This is not small change. This is big money that he's entrusting to them. Uh, if we're talking about gold, a talent of gold is worth in our money something like $40 million. $40 million. Uh, 500 years of wages for a day worker in those days. $40 million. So in that case, the guy who's been entrusted with five talents of gold is being entrusted with something like $200 million. So now the story begins to take on a bit of a different weight, isn't it? It's not a guy saying, oh look, here's my coin purse, could you mind that for me? It's a guy saying, here's up to $40 million. I'm going away and I'm entrusting you with it while I'm gone. It's a lot of money, the trust is very high, but the expectations are also very high. The expectations are very high. What he's asking these bond servants to do is not just protect this money, not just kind of lock it down and care for it, but to grow the asset, 
to build the asset, to trade with it, to continue the master's business so that the asset increases. And so what happens? Well, as we heard, verses 16 through to 18, two of the servants double the asset. One of them doesn't do anything with his, doesn't lose it, but doesn't grow it. Well, in verses 19 through to 23, we have the story of the master coming back and a reckoning of the accounts. Uh, He returns, and uh, what we do is we see two have shown this incredible profit that they've made. The first comes back, Master, you gave me five talents, I've doubled them, I've got ten. Well, what does the Master think of him? The Master says, uh, you can see it here, can't you? Uh, Verse 20, 20, the man who received the five bags of gold bought and, and the other five, Master, he said, you entrusted me with five bags of gold, see, I've gained five more. His Master replied, famous words from the Scriptures, well done, good and faithful servant. And then I love this bit. This shows you how rich and powerful the master actually is. He says, you've been faithful with a few things. I'll put you in charge of many things. So it turns out that after all, the the $200 million or whatever it was, the master says, oh, thank you for caring for those few trifling things. Now, come, I'm going to put you in charge of some some real things, something of real value. Wow. Uh, The second is the same. Master, you entrusted me with two bags of gold, verse 22. I've gained two more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. Same again. You've been faithful with a few things. Come, share in your master's happiness. Incredible. Come and share in your master's happiness. Then we get the third, and this is, of course, the uh, one where the story turns. The third slave is scared. He comes to his master and he says, Look, master, I knew that you were a hard man, harvesting where you have not sown, gathering where you have not scattered seed. So I was afraid. I went out, hid your gold in the ground. See, here is what belongs to you. Uh, What's he done? He says, I look at my master and somehow my master takes what he has and somehow it it just grows and doubles and builds and that kind of freaks me out that's unpredictable that's uncontrollable um it it seems like it's a high stakes game putting all of this money on the table and and it seems to flourish but but i don't know how that happens i'm not i don't feel safe in this environment so what he's done instead of trading like the first two did is nothing nothing what he does is he just keeps it he keeps the one talent or the one bag of gold safe because he was afraid and he returns it to his master he says here have it have it back have it back what does the master think of this what does the master think of this he's angry and he condemns the servant the language is really strong isn't it you wicked, lazy servant. You wicked, lazy servant. He hasn't done what's expected of him. Now, you might think this is unreasonable, right? When the master left, he had, what, five plus two plus one. He had eight bags of gold, eight talents. When he returns, he now has ten plus four plus one, fifteen. That's a pretty good return on investment, right? You'd think he should be going, look, 
overall, this has panned out really well for me. Uh, I'm pretty happy, so uh, that's fine. Well, of course, remember for the master, he doesn't actually care about the profit. What does he call this? Small things. This is small things for him. He's not interested in whether he got another five talents of silver, whether he got another $40 million. That's not what's of concern to him. What's really of concern to him is the heart of his servants. That's what matters, not these small trifling things. What's going on in the heart of his servant? And what he discerns is the first servant took what he'd been entrusted with, did what he was told, was obedient, was faithful, was interested in the master's assets, interested in the master's project, interested in the master's plans, and he did it. The second was the same, keen to see the master's work grow, keen to see the master benefit. The third was scared and passive and did nothing. His fear overrode his commitment to see the master's assets built. His fear overrode his commitment to see the master's assets built. So he did nothing. Uh, Another way of thinking about this might be, imagine you're a boss in a workplace. Imagine you're a boss in a workplace and you say, I'm I'm going off to some meetings or something, I'll be back in a week, uh, and here's some work to do while I'm gone. And the boss gives, you know, a big pile of folders to the workers. Gives them each, and he comes back and the worker said, oh, well, here's all the work I've done it. And another says, here's the work I've done it. And the third one says, here's your folders, I kept them safe. You think, well, you, you haven't done the work. I asked you to do something and you haven't done it. And you might have returned it to me. I didn't ask you to return it to me. I asked you to show me your commitment to this organisation, to show me that you're keen to build what I'm trying to build, to be on board and to do it. And you've just chosen not to do it. That's the reason the master's so angry at him. It's not about the money, it's about his heart and his care for the master's project. He's also, isn't he, uh, lacking in trust? Because he says, he's condemned by his own words. He doesn't just say, master, your ways are random and I never know what's going to happen. Master, sometimes... uh, Everything just goes haywire when we follow your plans. No, what he says is, you reap where you don't sow. You gather where you don't scatter. That is, Master, I know that your plans always prosper. And he still didn't want to have any part of it. He still didn't want to have any part of it. He didn't trust that the Master's plans would prosper. He also didn't trust the Master's assessment of his capacity. Uh, Remember... Uh, what uh, happened in, go back to verse 15, the man goes on the journey, he calls his servants and entrusts his wealth to them and to each one, to one he gave uh, five bags of gold, to another two bags of gold, to another one bag, each according to his ability, each according to his ability. The master knows what his servants are capable of. He gave one guy five bags of gold, why? Because he knew that he could deal with that five bags and double it, and he did. He gave to another two bags of gold, why? Because he knew he could deal with two bags and double it, and he did. He gave to the third one bag of gold, why? Because he knew he could deal with it and double it, and he didn't. The master knew his capacity and gave him his gift in uh, in accordance with his correct assessment of his capacity, and the man failed to act on that. So he doesn't trust the master's judgment, of his capacity, 
He doesn't have a heart for the master's project and he doesn't even trust his own words which say, I know that you create something out of nothing. Furthermore, as almost to put the final nail in the coffin, verses 26 to 27, this servant is not even interested in the bare minimum. His master replied, you wicked, lazy, interesting that he calls him lazy, you wicked, lazy servant, you knew that I harvest where I've not sown and gather where I've not scattered seed, well then, you should have in the very least put my money on deposit with the bankers so that when I returned, I would have received it back with interest. Maybe you wouldn't have done what I asked you to do. Maybe you wouldn't have doubled the one bag of gold and given me two. But you might have got 5% or whatever the going rate is. You didn't even do that. You didn't do the bare minimum. This servant's primary concern was self-interest, self-protection. He operated out of fear. Ironically, in trying to protect his own situation, he's the one who walks into condemnation and judgment for the failure of his actions. Self-preservation is not the path to self-preservation. What does Jesus say? Those who lose their life for the gospel will gain it. So this is a story about what Jesus calls his people to do while his people wait for his return. And we can sum it up very simply in saying what Jesus calls his people to do is grow his assets. That's what he calls his people to do. You can't just have the story from Matthew 24 and say, Jesus just calls us to be ready. So we're just sitting here ready. We're ready. When he comes, we're ready. Could be this afternoon, I'm ready. It's not just the story of the bridesmaids, which be ready for a long wait. Okay, I'm here, I'm ready. I'm ready for 30 years. I'm ready for 50 years. I'm ready. It's this story as well. Be ready for a long wait where we're active and doing the work that he's called us to do so that when he returns, he can say, well done, good and faithful servants. You have done the one thing I asked, which was to build my asset, grow my asset. Now, this is, of course, cast in financial terms. This is the way that the parable is set. But once again, God doesn't need the money. It's not like God is saying, gosh, I, I'm, I'm running a bit short. Could you go out and help me out here? No, really the asset is people's hearts. He doesn't just want there to be five more bags of gold. He wants there to be five more followers of Jesus. Five more people who give their life to him and call him Lord and King. He calls us now to grow his asset to have a passionate heart for his interests, not to be lazy or fearful or self-protective, but to seek his interests. It's not just a time for faithful waiting, it's a time for strategic, brave, forward-thinking, building work, so that God willing, when he returns, we can say, we've actually done something to grow what we inherited. Uh, what are the master's assets? Well, all creation belongs to him, we know that. But not all creation knows that yet. His kingdom is represented by those who have given themselves to him. Jesus' possessions on earth are his people, and especially his people gathered as his church. And so, what we really need to do is recognize our task of building the church. Building the church. Uh, it would be great, wouldn't it, to say, uh, when I entered the church, 
broadly speaking, we had X number of people or however big it was. And when I left and I look back after my 40, 50 years, well, the church had grown. And part of that was because we put our shoulder to the wheel. Now, I must say, of course, this is not how you're saved. Please don't think that salvation is based on how many runs you get on the board. No, 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 no. We're saved freely by the death of the Lord Jesus Christ in our place, a substitute for us, making atonement before the Father, rising to new life, entering into the Father's presence, and by that, pioneering a pathway for humans into the new creation. So you're not saved by what you do, but you are saved in order that you might also do some things. Jesus is not just saving people to himself, he's recruiting an army of workers. And so wouldn't it be great, again, to be able to say over the course of our lives, the course of our church's life, the course of our ministry, we put our shoulder to the wheel, not, not for our salvation, but because we care about what he cares about. And so we worked on what was most important to him. And then, well, we don't have to bring the growth, he, he gathers where he doesn't scatter, he harvests where he hasn't sown, he does the work, but our hearts are given to it. Let's get down to tin tacks, what will this mean? What will this mean? Well, I think it's going to mean a couple of things. I think it's going to mean we should unashamedly look for our churches to grow. We should unashamedly look for our churches to grow. Uh, and, and to grow in size and in number. Some people feel this is ugly and they think, oh, you know, this is very kind of corporate talk and growing the business and all that sort of stuff. Read the book of Acts. As you read through the book of Acts, again and again, it puts flags in the ground about how the community of believers was growing. Sometimes it gives numbers. 3,000 were added that day. A great many people came to faith. Priests came to the faith. Growth is sort of unashamed in the book of Acts. And we should be thinking about seeing the church grow too. What does that mean? Well, it means calling people to faith, proclaiming the message, letting people know the way that they can have peace with God, how they belong to his family, how they become members of the kingdom, how they stand to receive their inheritance. And we have to do that by having that message on our lips. Sometimes people say, well, actually, the best way to tell the gospel is by living it. Uh, you don't have to say anything, just live it, and it'll kind of rub off on people. But it's, it's actually not true. That, that's a good thing to do, but an inadequate thing to do on its own. Uh, I'll tell you two stories that illustrate this for you. Uh, one is quite simply uh, the story of the newsreader who sits behind their desk and where their producer comes up and says, OK, the camera's about to roll. What I want you to do is tell people the news and, if necessary, use your words. What's the alternative? Just stand there and live the news? No, news by its nature is news. News means something to be told. So it has to be on our lips. We have to tell it. Now, another story is a fantastically funny story in a way. But I, I, I was speaking to someone who said uh, they knew a person who was a Christian believer in there. And when they're at their work, they were really hoping that they might be able to share the good news of the gospel of Jesus with people around them. And they decided that uh, the way they would do this would just be by living a really pure and holy and upright life following Jesus. There was an open plan office so people could see that. Uh, and they did this for some time. Uh, just be the best, most upstanding, upright worker in the hope that someone would go, wow, there's something different about you, I should become a Christian. Anyway, after some time, one of their fellow workers came in and uh, kind of a bit awkwardly said to them, look, I, 
I just want to talk to you about something. I said, oh, yes, what? He said, I, this is really strange, but I've just become a Christian. And the, the first worker, the, the, the long-term Christian said, oh, that's great, I'm a Christian too, and I've been praying for you for however long it's been. At which point, the person who just come to Christ said, what, you're a Christian? You're the whole reason I haven't become a Christian for the last however many years. And they said, what do you mean, what do you mean? Because, well, I looked at you, and I thought, here's a person who lives an exemplary, upstanding, really uh, morally excellent life, and Jesus has got nothing to do with it. So I thought I could do that too. No, no, no. The words must be on our lips. The words must be on our lips. If we want to see the Master's assets grow, if we want to see the church built, that will not happen if we do not talk, if we do not speak the Gospel. It can be awkward, it can be embarrassing, it can be uncomfortable, it can be kind of just out of sync with our culture. But that's what we must do. There are lots of different ways we can do that. It doesn't have to look the same. It doesn't mean you have to get a soapbox and go and stand in the shopping centre. It can mean inviting people to church. It's a great place to hear the message because you hear it in a context where it's lived as well. But you might offer to read the Bible with someone. Sit down over a coffee and say, hey, let's read Matthew's Gospel and talk about it. Trust that the Spirit will speak through the words. You might create different events. Say, hey, you know, we've never done like a street barbecue or something where you could start by saying grace and inviting anyone who'd like to uh, learn more about your faith to come and have a chat with you. I don't know what it looks like and it doesn't really matter. It looks different in different contexts. It will require time. It will re require courage. It may require money as well. But that's okay. That's what we live for, to see the Master's assets grow. So we're ready to invest all of ourselves in that project. The master's assets aren't just grown by size though, they're also grown in depth, in depth. What we don't want is a church that's 100 miles wide and one inch deep. Uh, and that certainly won't serve us for the coming generations. It might have stood to some extent in previous generations where we just had a Christian culture and people just kind of could get by saying, oh, we're Christians, but we don't really know much about what that really means because our culture is just Christian, so if we swim in the cultural tides, we'll be basically okay. No, now our culture, as you know, is, is really pushing back against the Christian faith. And the way that we need to meet that culture is not by being ignorant of our own faith, but by knowing it more and more deeply. By being people who study the Scriptures and understand them in significant depth. Who understand that Matthew 25 only makes sense in the context of Matthew 24 which of course comes as part of the narrative arc of Matthew's Gospel, which we know because we've been studying Matthew's Gospel in our Bible study group or our church or in our own quiet reading. We have to know this stuff in depth. We can't just have memory verses. We need to know the Scriptures in depth. But we can also help each other in that, can't we? So what you could do is perhaps help someone who's a new believer to get past a Sunday school faith. So they know more than just the big stories and a few memory verses, but they learn some more of the depth of what the Bible teaches and what it will look like in their lives. Uh, we might help people who are kind of what I call catchphrase Christians. They've got a few catchphrases that seem to do duty for every part of the Christian life. We might help them to get into a more solid Bible study and learn some more depth and nuance and of the ins and outs of what the Scripture teaches. We might help Christians who are confused in what they believe to get clarity around their doctrine, to help them be clear on what the Scriptures say and what they don't say, 
We might help Christians who live completely in their heads to get out into the world and not just be thinky believers, but believers who live their faith for the glory of Jesus. We might help self-centred Christians become more sacrificial, fearful Christians become braver. Again, it's going to require our time, might require some courage, might require some money, but that's okay. This is what our lives are about, building the master's assets. These are different ways we can do it. It's going to take uh, lots of work, isn't it? It's going to take lots of work. It's going to require more and deeper Christian leadership, I think. We need to know, of course, that no plane flies itself, no crew rises above their captain. Uh, and again, just bringing you back to my notice from earlier on, this is partly where the college comes in, in what's going on in Adelaide and South Australia. Uh, we're here to prepare the next generation of Christian leaders for Adelaide, South Australia and beyond. We're he here to help them integrate biblical theology with uh, an understanding of the Christian worldview with really practical on-the-ground ministry. Uh, it's not short-term work, none of this is short-term work, but remember, it could be a long wait. We're not just to invest in things that we think might pay back tomorrow, we're to invest in things that might pay back in a generation or the generation after that. And that really makes sense of what we do at the college, but it also is how churches should think. What's our five-year and ten-year goal? What's our vision for what we might do under the sovereignty of God? Uh, I've already uh, said that if you know anyone who you think should be tapped on the shoulder to come and study at college, that's great. But I also want to encourage you to tap each other on the shoulder for serving in this church and thinking about how you're going to be uh, doing whatever it is that you've set out to do to build the master's asset here. What's that going to look like? What will your commitment look like? And I think the great thing about that is the end of this is profoundly exciting, isn't it? It's profoundly exciting. Can you imagine when the master returns, have him come up to you and say, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful in a few things, building the global church. Come, share in your master's happiness. Well, that's what we all long for, isn't it? And so now's the time to give ourselves to his purpose, trusting in his grace, living under the cross, hoping in the resurrection, and being the people that he's called us to be while we wait for him to return. Let me pray for us. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the good news that we have in the Scriptures of all that Jesus has done for us in his death and his resurrection, uh, but also all that we've been called to. And we pray that you'd help us to live as we have been called to live, not selfishly, not fearfully, uh, but putting Jesus' purposes first. We pray that you'd help us to be strategic and wise, uh, sacrificial, and ready to do whatever it is uh, that you've called us to do. And we pray, Father, that you would indeed gather where you haven't scattered and reap where you haven't sown. And we'd love the blessing of being able to see the fruit of that in our generation. Uh, we know you don't need us, but we know that you care profoundly about our hearts. So by your Spirit, please set our hearts right, that we might live uh, in the ways you want us to live for your glory.